Hey gang, this week's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Yes, unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors, including the brand new course, Fundamentals of Photography. Check it out at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. You'll get a free month for a limited time of all the great coursework at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats for your free month. Check it out. Here's our show. 28 seconds to go. Sockers lead the blast 3-1. It could be all over in moments. Works with a shot. Blocked by Namdar. Works ever so tenacious in his effort to bring the blast back, but so far to no avail. And now a foul. Free kick Baltimore to the left of Alan Mayer. 15 seconds to go in this game. Counts off the glass. Wojciechowski heading it away. Works another drive. Namdar blocks it. Julie B with 10 seconds. Kicks it downfield. Wojciechowski down the left boards. A shot is wide. It's off the end wall. The San Diego Packers have won the MISL championship. A miraculous victory here tonight. Losing two straight in Baltimore. The final score. The soccer three. The blast one. It's all over. This is the MISL championship series. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh, can you feel the excitement? Holy mackerel. My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. I uh, thank you profusely for finding us in podcast land, downloading us and putting us into your earbuds. Hopefully we've got some excitement for you this week. And uh, we're off to a rip roar and start, aren't we? If you can guess uh, our voice just by that, if squint really hard, you will hear the dulcet tones of one Randy Hahn, our guest this week, who is, of course, the longtime voice of the NHL's San Jose Sharks. You'll hear him uh, calling play by play for the upcoming season yet again for the Sharks and NBC Sports California. Uh, but we know him and love him and uh, want to go deeper into the story of his earlier days prior to uh, ascending that mountain in the NHL uh, when he was, uh, among other things, a uh, well-known and well-regarded and, uh, uh, frankly, uh, just a masterful with the language soccer broadcaster. And uh, we get into uh, some of those early stops, uh, one of which you just heard. Uh, that uh, game that you just heard was uh, the May 23rd uh, Game 5 uh, tie-breaking final uh, in the Major Indoor Soccer League Championship Series uh, in 1983, where the San Diego Soccers defeated the Baltimore Blast 3-1 to to win what was then uh, their second consecutive indoor soccer title. The season before, of course, the Soccers played in the North American Soccer League's indoor season, and uh, they won the championship there, too. So we join you now as uh, the San Diego Soccers have now just won uh, two championships, one in the NASL and now one in the more grueling uh, MISL. And what uh, Randy and uh, and Ron Newman, the coach, and and all the players and, the, and, and Bob Bell, the owner, what they didn't realize was they were frankly, on the road to beginning what became essentially the indoor dynasty of all time in this uh, in this country, where they went on to win 10 championships, uh, five in a row until through 1986, 
They uh, lost in the semifinals of the MISL in 87, but then came roaring back to win five more consecutive championships uh, in uh, the MISL in the last two seasons known as the MSL or Major Soccer League. Uh, And even in 1993, when that league folded and they went to the CISL, they were runners up in the finals. Uh, You could not uh, conjure up a more dynastic team. Perhaps the New York Arrows in the earliest four years of the MISL uh, were certainly something and uh, a force to be reckoned with. Steve Jungle and Bronco Segoda for a year, Freddie Gagurev and Shep Messing and all that, right? But circa 1982-83, this was the first year of the soccer's entry into the MISL and uh, it was the fifth year of the uh, of the MISL generally. It was the first time that a team other than the New York Arrows won the championship. And there's no surprise there of why uh, Randy and uh, his uh, his broadcast team were just going nuts in the San Diego Sports Arena to celebrate what was then again the second indoor consecutive title uh, for the San Diego Soccers. And a fascinating story the Soccers are and were. And uh, we're going to get into that with uh, with Randy, as well as where he uh, kind of got his start. His real first professional gig, full time, that is, was with the NASL outdoor and even indoor. Edmonton Drillers and uh, and Randy will uh, get into uh, growing up and in, uh, in the Edmonton area. And actually, it was that wasn't even his first dalliance with the NASL. It was with, believe it or not, the Vancouver Whitecaps while he was in college. We're going to get into all of that stuff. Talk about Ron Newman, the great coach of the San Diego Soccers, all the great players, uh, as well as a bit of just an insight into uh, uh, the vagabond life of uh, of a sports broadcaster. We've done it with many others. Uh, on this show. And and uh, Randy Hahn is uh, uh, no exception to that rule. And uh, we love to kind of go back in time, reminisce about some of the hard knocks, as well as some of the uh, just sheer joyful memories. And and frankly, the uh, the laying of uh, foundation for uh, for the career, uh, which he now certainly enjoys as the voice of the San Jose Sharks. All of that stuff is coming up with our guest, our special guest this week, Randy Hahn, in just a couple of moments. We want to uh, first, though, thank our friends at Streaker Sports uh, for their sponsorship of the show this week. Streakersports.com is the place to go. And among many other cool stuff, they call themselves the purveyor of sports culture, of course. They have a brand new special collection devoted to, you guessed it, the North American Soccer League. And if you want a really cool a retro shirt featuring the San Diego Soccer's logo. You will find it there at streakersports.com. Do you want to uh, get uh, an old Edmonton Drillers shirt? You will find that there, too, at streakersports.com. Even the Vancouver Whitecaps, where we'll hear Randy's uh, initial sort of college internships, if you will. The Vancouver Whitecaps shirt is there from the old NASL at streakersports.com. That and literally a couple of dozen other NASL teams, all in great uh, distress-looking shirt form. Uh, you will find just about every logo and every team. They're all there, and they're just tremendously well-crafted, and uh, they're uh, designed to be sort of the coolest and the uh, most comfortable uh, shirts in your wardrobe. And if you go to streakersports.com right now and use that promo code GOODSEATS, you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases. So stock up and get some of these great North American Soccer League t-shirts, among tons of other stuff, by the way, at streakersports.com and use that promo code GOODSEATS and receive, courtesy of us, 10% 
off all of your purchases. So go check out that NASL collection. You will uh, be glad you did. And I guarantee you're going to buy not just one shirt, but probably a bunch because they're all there waiting for you. I love them and you will too. Thank you so much to streakersports.com. Again, don't forget that promo code, good seats. All right, let's uh, move on and let's get into some of that North American Soccer League goodness and frankly, some MISL stuff too with our our new friend, Randy Hahn. And uh, here's our great conversation that we just had a couple of days ago. Please enjoy. This uh, little show is very idiosyncratic, right? Uh, we, uh, For whatever reason, actually, it, I think I figured out the reason. I was a Cosmos fan when I was a kid. And I became really fascinated with the North American Soccer League, especially in hindsight as all those teams and leagues sort of came and went. We'll get to your... Uh, your esteemed status as the as the Sharks uh, announcer extraordinaire. Um, but uh, it uh, was curious to me uh, that you uh, got your uh, broadcasting, I guess, kind of really your start, uh, but I'll let you explain it. Actually, in the old North American Soccer League up in Edmonton, you want to give our audience a bit of a sense of, of how you sort of got into the broadcasting game altogether and maybe where the NASL and the Edmonton Drillers kind of fit into that. Well, actually, before the Edmonton Drillers, I was uh, not the play-by-play announcer, but involved in covering the old Vancouver Whitecaps. Uh, I was going to college at UBC, uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and also working at the radio station that carried the Whitecaps broadcast. So I was uh, involved in interviewing players and and kind of getting to know the, the culture of soccer for the first time because my experience as a as a Canadian kid was pretty much at that point limited to hockey and the Canadian Football League and I just had not covered a lot of pro soccer so a couple of years of being around the game in Vancouver and then uh, got my first television job at CFRN in Edmonton which is my original hometown so sort of full circle coming back to where I was born and grew up to do my first TV job in 1980 and it was there that I went to work for the station that was a both radio and TV combination operation and they carried the Edmonton Drillers games on television and to a lesser extent when it became necessary in a playoff setting radio and that is how I actually got my first play-by-play job doing anything Uh, I was doing the 11 p.m. television sports in Edmonton The Drillers had a playoff game the very next day in Houston. And at about 10 o'clock the night before the game in Houston, with me sitting in Edmonton, uh, I found out that they needed somebody in an emergency basis to do the game because the regular play-by-play guy was sick or unavailable or whatever. Have you ever done soccer? I said, of course, which was a bald-faced lie. And uh, they booked me a flight, and at 6 o'clock the next morning, I flew from Edmonton to Houston. And trust me, there never has been, and to this date still is not a nonstop flight. It was a long day of traveling uh, in the summer for an outdoor playoff game, which would actually be played indoors at the old Houston Astrodome. Stepped off the plane, walked out of the airport into basically 95-degree humidity in Houston, which was a far cry from what I left in Edmonton, dropped my bags at a hotel, went to the Astrodome. There was probably more ushers working the building than were actually fans at the game. And the Edmonton Drillers played Houston 
and they kicked off, and that was the first play-by-play of soccer, of hockey, of anything that I had ever done, except my original uh, dog sled uh, play-by-play when I was 16 years old, but that doesn't quite count in the same sense. And uh, I did the game, and thank goodness it was on radio, because if it was on TV, everyone would have realized how horrendous I was. But the drillers won, and uh, victory always covers up bad announcing, and I was on my way, and that was uh, my, my pro debut, if you will. Well, even if we actually to get to that, so that's that's fascinating. I had when did you know that you wanted to be a broadcaster at all? Like, did you know that going into into college when you were in Vancouver, or or was it did it evolve as you were in college and you stumbled across job well, opportunities? I, I was actually already a broadcaster before I went to college. Uh, I was very fortunate uh, after leaving Edmonton, probably at the age of about ten, eleven. And, and maybe the seed was planted in those years when I lived there and would sit in my or lay in my bed at night uh, on a school night and listen to um, Edmonton Eskimos football games on the radio. Or if I could pick up an out-of-town station late at night in Salt Lake City, KSL, a 100,000-watt clear channel station, maybe they had some kind of an event on that I could hear on my uh, transistor radio. But I was always very fascinated with sports, I believe, because it, ex- it introduces you to the whole concept of theater of the mind, which is what uh, a radio broadcast of a sporting event is. You're only providing the parameters. The listener has to imagine the game in their head. And that connection between that listener and the announcer is very, very strong and very direct, as opposed to television where you see the events and the, uh, the broadcasters just enhance it. But I think that's where the seed was planted when I was a younger boy. And then my family moved to the Yukon Territory in Canada, which for uh, those unfamiliar is up near Alaska, a very remote area, a small town of about 20,000 people. And while attending high school, I literally lucked into uh, being invited to be interviewed on a radio show when I was 15, uh, representing our our high school. And I was uh, asked to join the host to interview who to this day Uh, might still be the most famous person I've ever interviewed. And it was the first interview I ever did at the age of 15. And it was Colonel Harlan Saunders of Kentucky Fried Chicken fame, (laughs) who happened to be passing through our town to visit his franchise in Whitehorse on the Alaska Highway. And I was in the studio with this uh, host that day, and I got to ask Colonel Saunders what the secret recipe was. And of course he wouldn't reveal it, but uh, that was where I first got my start. And that's really, I think that what really lit the fuse. I love the environment. I love being in the studio. I love being on the microphone. And from there it led to uh, an opportunity to work at the local radio station in my, in the town where I lived in Whitehorse. And I worked there for the CBC and then uh, applied to go to the university of British Columbia was accepted and then uh, worked part-time at a, at a Vancouver commercial radio station, CKNW, which was, was also the home of the Vancouver Canucks of the NHL. And that was kind of my first experience in working in hockey on radio. So I was lucky. From the age of 15, I've been doing what I do now. And uh, here we are 45 years later. I'm completely unqualified to do anything else. And if I lose the current job I have, I'll probably be living under a bridge in six weeks. I doubt that highly, but, uh, you know, let's uh, not uh, tempt fate. Because well, it's a fickle business, right, this. And, and I, I, I'm just, so I'm really curious, uh, back to the drillers, 
you know, this this sounds like uh, the proverbial sort of falling into the situational kind of story uh, that we've heard time and time again from, you know, uh, most many of the broadcasters that we talked to. I mean, we talked to uh, a bunch like John Sterling in New York and uh, J.P. Della Camera on the soccer side and, and a few others. And so I, I guess I'd love to hear your impressions of, OK, so you get through this Edmonton Drillers playoff game. Did you think that that was uh, going to turn into a more substantial sort of play-by-play kind of gig, or were, was this kind of just a side sidelight to your anchoring duties uh, on sports back at the home station? Well, in that one instance, it was a sidelight, and then a week later, I almost was drummed right out of the whole idea because I, apparently I had impressed enough on that first-ever broadcast from Houston that the next week when the regular play-by-play announcer returned for a TV game, they sent me along now as the sideline guy as they beefed up their coverage. It was round two of the NASL playoffs. So now I'm on the sidelines at Lockhart Stadium in Fort Lauderdale, uh, a very awesome, intimate uh, you know, field, a college football field that uh, the Fort Lauderdale uh, franchise was, I think it was Strikers was the name of the franchise. And, uh, and the fans at this sold out game, and there had been a very controversial game there the week before with police involved. So there was all these police with German shepherds surrounding the field for the game we were at and nothing happened except the fans discovered that I was the visiting sideline reporter and they started throwing ice cubes at me. And even though that was somewhat welcome in the uh, midsummer Florida humidity, getting hit in the head repeatedly with ice cubes felt like being stoned, literally. Um, So uh, I wasn't sure what to expect of all this, but as it turned out the very next season, uh, when the Edmonton Drillers not only returned to the NASL, but they went into the indoor uh, NASL, uh, I was asked if I wanted to do all the games from that time going forward. And, uh, of course, in a nanosecond, I said yes, uh, because I, I, it, I had already discovered, I think, that it's what I liked and wanted to pursue next. And it continued to be in combination with me anchoring sports, but eventually I went to it full-time within two years. Here's Drew Ferguson curling it in. Ten seconds to go in regulation play. Offside call on the drillers there. Cosmo's free kick. They put it into play immediately. The crowd counting down the clock here. Two, one. A good team game, Randy. It's probably one of the best team games I've played all year. Um, really, Petula didn't have much to do in goal. When he was called upon to make saves, he made key saves. Uh, the defense played very well. Midfield played very well. Tommy Christensen, Drew Ferguson did a lot of running tonight and uh, today. And uh, really, they, they've got to be uh, pleased with themselves. It was just an all-round good team game. All right, so the final score is Edmonton 2, the New York Cosmos nothing. So th- that's interesting. That sort of the indoor and outdoor thing, right? So I, I, I'd love to hear a little bit more uh, uh, commentary about sort of the Drillers franchise generally with the uh, enigmatic uh, Peter Pocklington uh, sort of pulling the strings. Uh, but also sort of your recollections of the NASL as an outdoor league, as well as an indoor league occasionally, uh, and and how maybe even the drillers kind of handle that. Because, you know, I, we, we've had a lot of different conversations. I mean, like the Atlanta Chiefs, for example, right, you know, drew flies outdoors, but indoors they were truly hot and it was more exciting. Um, I know the drillers had a championship indoors, uh, unlike their their travails outdoors. Uh 
it's a lot of questions all at once, but what are your recollections of Edmonton as a franchise as well as uh, a team that's playing either outdoors or indoors, depending on what month it was? Well, my, my first season with, with them ended up being 1980, 80-81 uh, season. And uh, the, the transition between outdoor and indoor was very difficult. And this t- turned out to uh, replicate itself in when I was with the San Diego Soccers, and they did the very same thing. And there was literally, a, I want to say, a 10-day break between the end of the outdoor season and the start of the indoor season. And the personnel didn't change a whole lot. So you had all these players who had just gone through the grind of a a fairly long NASL outdoor season. And they go right into what was probably back then, if my memory serves me correctly, about a a 40 to 48 game indoor season. Uh, So it was really tough on the players to make that transition. Uh, And, you know, for an announcer, not not such a big deal. But it, it was just a really quick turnaround. And it was also tough for the fans, too, because I think at the end of every season, especially if it doesn't end in a championship, you need some time away from it before you can build up momentum for the next season. And here you're asking your fans, okay, we just got eliminated from the playoffs, and 10 days later, you know, it's the season opener. So it it was very unusual to to combine the two. It was done for economic reasons to try and uh, maybe hyper- jumpstart the the sport and trying you know Pocklington who you uh who you recall or who you referenced and he's probably most famous for bringing Wayne Gretzky to the Edmonton Oilers but I think he felt that if they played more months of the year it would expose the product faster and I, I just think he didn't have the deep enough pockets or wasn't willing to reach into them to prop this thing up for too long at a big loss and the franchise certainly did run at a loss and didn't have a very long run. So I think that was the reason for doing it, but I'm not sure it was necessarily uh, beneficial as it turned out for uh, the franchise uh, because it eventually folded. But for me, that was the beginning of another whole chapter because upon the drillers folding, uh, I moved on to San Diego and, and had a great run there and have nine championship rings to show it, show from that time in San Diego. Yeah, and I so I'm really curious that as as you sort of got deeper in with the uh, the Drillers organization, I mean, was soccer something that you felt that you wanted to do full time, or were you just kind of being dragged in that direction? Um, I got to imagine that the indoor game at least had a little bit of sort of that hockey flavor. I know JP Della Camera kind of felt that that was at least an entree, or at least kept his uh, uh, you know his skills kind of warm, shall we say, for what at least in his mind was an eventual sort of go at sort of the NHL and then hockey, which was sort of prime in his mind. Were you kind of just going with the flow, given that that was it was a gig and you get play-by-play experience? Or did you did you think that soccer was going to be kind of it? Or did you have dreams of kind of leveraging that into something else eventually someday? I think what it, what it ended up being for me, especially when uh, I left Edmonton, uh, more than anything, rather than chasing the soccer broadcast dream, it it was uh, satisfying another dream, and that was to work in the United States. Uh, very early on in my broadcast time in Edmonton, it became apparent that it was a, a much smaller marketplace than was the U.S. broadcast market. Uh, you know, the state of California to this day has more people, has a greater population than the entire country of Canada, which is the second largest in, in landmass in the world. So you have this huge country with not that many people in it. And, and as a result, 
the sports media landscape is much, much different than in the U.S. So I wanted to I wanted to go to the U.S. I had tasted the travel. I'd been to New York. I'd been to Chicago. I'd been to San Diego, L.A., uh, and so on and so on. And it was as a young man, it was it was very exciting to see a whole new world. And the prospect of being involved in the broadcast side of things in the U.S. was very, very appetizing. And when Peter Pocklington, thanks to him in large part, made it possible for me to get a work visa after the drillers folded and moved to San Diego, uh, I jumped at the opportunity. So I think I I was doing the soccer and very excited to do it and would end up doing a lot more of it, uh, even at the World Cup level. Um, but I, I think initially it was just for the opportunity to get into the U.S. market and work there as a Canadian. Uh, and then once I got there, I think eventually I, I returned to my roots and, and craved the opportunity to work in the NHL, which eventually uh, came with the Los Angeles Kings as a result of doing soccer on the same channel that the Kings were on down in uh, down in Southern California. Interesting. So how does how does the move uh, aside from the uh uh, the visa and and the uh, uh, the ability to work uh, in the United States. How do you get from Edmonton Drillers coverage to the San Diego gig? How does that even come about? I, obviously, you know the MISL was its own different beast, but I'm just curious as to how how you actually got to San Diego relative, say, to other opportunities that might have been nibbling at you. Well, at the end of the uh, at the end of the indoor season, the uh, Edmonton Drillers folded. Uh, at the end of the outdoor season, played our last game in Portland at the old Portland Civic Stadium against the then Portland Timbers. And we all had a pretty good idea that the franchise was going to fold at the end of the season, that Pocklington was going to shut it down. And they did. And uh, I had already planned a vacation to Hawaii. I was going there for a couple of weeks. Nice, nice day. And of course, this is in the days before we all walked around with phones in our pocket uh, and communication was at a very different level. So I went to Hawaii for a couple of weeks. I get back home and there's like four messages on my answering machine from Bill Hansen, who was the PR director and was also in charge of the broadcasters for the San Diego Sockers. And we had developed a little bit of a relationship in my time with Edmondson uh, playing in San Diego and and me getting to know Bill and we hit it off. And he said, uh, please call me uh, immediately. And I had four of those messages that had come over two weeks. So as soon as I got home, of course, I got on the phone immediately. And he said, thank goodness you called. Um, We're making a change with our broadcaster, and we wanted to know if you were interested. And I said, yes, I'm interested. And he said, can you send me a tape? And I said, yes, I happen to have a tape of the Edmonton Drillers versus the San Diego Sockers. He said, get that to me as fast as possible. So fortunately, FedEx did exist at that time. And I overnighted in the tape. Uh, He played it for the owner because it was the owner who was going to make the call, Bob Bell. And he said, great, I like it. He's our guy. Let's see if we can make it happen. And then we have to start working on, on immigration and, and issues of that nature. Uh, the, the deal they offered me was uh, $16,000 a year less than I was making at the time in Edmonton. But, you know, as a 23-year-old and with the dream to work in the U.S., uh, money in those days, even if it was such a drastic cut in pay, didn't really matter to me. That that wasn't a, a factor. Uh, when the job was offered, I, I immediately accepted it, and and all the the financial stuff worked out. But that's how I ended up with the San Diego Soccer's. They had just won 
their first of 10 indoor titles in the NASL indoor. And then the NASL indoor after the 81-82 season folded and the MISL came into being and the San Diego Sockers were playing their inaugural MISL season, the 82-83 season. And lo and behold, my first ever year of doing uh, San Diego indoor soccer, they won a championship and went on to uh, be the titans of indoor soccer uh, through the rest of the 80s and well into the 90s under Ron Newman. So it was a great beginning for me. Uh, and we had a great following, the old San Diego Arena, which is still there in its, in its uh, original state, uh, was packed every night. And, uh, well, it was the beginning of what really was a dynasty in pro sports, even though it was indoor soccer, which didn't have the same cachet as the other major sports. Uh, it was a remarkable run that they had. So when you went from Edmonton to San Diego, were you, was outdoor uh, in those last couple of years of the outdoor NASL as well? Was that part of your gig as, uh, as well, or was it exclusively just the indoor version? Oh, no, it was the outdoor as well. So, uh, you know, was already familiar with the NASL so that when the San Diego Sockers were playing outdoors, um, you know, a lot of the same personnel were still there. But, you know, I have some great memories of those years, as brief as they were with the Edmonton Drillers, of getting to see Pele. And, uh, you know, later on, some of the other greats in the NASL, uh, because when when the drillers came in, they were part of that 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 expansion time, that that real growth time in the NASL when it when it grew ultimately too big, too fast. And you had teams like Edmonton who wanted to get involved because ownership saw this opportunity to perhaps benefit from the 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 growth of the league. But you had teams like the Cosmos, and there were others as well, the Chicago Sting, and, and even the Seattle Sounders, and even Portland Timbers, who were spending you know, millions of dollars bringing over international players. And a team like the Edmonton Drillers just didn't have that financing to bring. So it, it was tough to compete, and it was tough to uh, make a splash when your stars weren't anything nearly as impressive as some of those other stars. And it turned out to be one of the great flaws of the NASL of overloading sometimes with, you know, stars who commanded big dollars, but their best years were behind them. And that became apparent very quickly. Once they got to North America, they just weren't the, the same as they used to be when they played abroad. So, uh, you know, the, the drillers kind of got caught up in that and, and they just couldn't survive in that environment. But uh, it was still uh, fabulous being involved and uh, and getting my first taste. And then, of course, I would do the outdoor for the San Diego Sockers for a long time and, and move along to other uh, even uh, more exciting opportunities in the outdoor game. So uh, it, it was it was good that I had those uh, early years with the Edmonton Drillers. So w- when you're doing, you know, both outdoor and indoor, I, I mean, I guess as a broadcaster, it's got to be a good thing because you, you're basically year round employed, right? You know, albeit in the NASL and not sort of in the, you know, the top tier, you know, pro leagues of uh, elsewhere. But did you prefer one versus the other? Uh, not not Edmonton versus San Diego, but I mean, outdoor versus indoor. The cadence, I'm sure, is different. The way that you prepare, how you pace yourself. I mean, I, process, I guess, is sort of the question. What difference, if any, was there, is there between that uh, outdoor game versus that of indoor? Well, I think uh, the biggest difference for me and the most, the most difficult thing was doing outdoor on radio. Uh, there's just not enough reference points on the field in the same way as a, a smaller venue like uh, an indoor soccer arena, which is basically a hockey rink with AstroTurf on it. 
the outdoor game was a lot harder to call on radio. On television, not so much. Uh, but, I, but I think, as I look back, I, I preferred the indoor game from what I do now because, as you referenced earlier, it's essentially hockey without the skates. Three forwards, two defenders, a goalkeeper, hockey, three forwards, two defensemen, a goalie, and it's played on the same, in the same setting, uh, just the difference being ice versus turf. So it was a great training ground for me playing the indoor, broadcasting the indoor game for eventually doing hockey because just because I'm born Canadian and grew up playing hockey as, as you expect to be pretty much every boy back then and now every boy and girl uh, plays hockey as soon as they can learn how to skate, that didn't necessarily qualify me to be a broadcaster at it. Uh, but I, but it, it became my dream to be in the NHL and as it turned out, what a better preparation ground uh, I could have hoped for, aside from doing minor league hockey, which I've never done, uh, than doing the MISL, which was essentially minor league hockey on grass. Well, I mean, uh, you know, coming into I, I just it, to me, it's fascinating to sort of the, the last year or two of the NASL. Right. Obviously, you know, in fits and starts. Right. Trying to hold on for everything. You, you mentioned the expansion too uh, too much too soon. And no doubt the, the 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 player imbalance in terms of salaries and all that kind of stuff, but it's also very interesting too. And we've had a couple of conversations around this on the MISL and how it, you know, ironically, indoor was something that the NASL kind of had the lock on even before the MISL was born in the early '70s. And it's just really interesting to see in hindsight how the NASL, you know, uh, struggled to kind of you know reclaim it after the MISL kind of almost perfected it. I just the indoor game to me is has always been fascinating, and uh, and there's no question that it really caught the attention of even the average sports fan because of its uh, intensity and, and action uh, versus that of the outdoor game, which by comparison was just you know much more plodding and certainly more quote unquote foreign, I guess, to the American fan. Yeah, and I, you know, I hate to hate to sound like that that media chant that we hear about the outdoor game, which, which I don't believe is necessarily the case and probably less so now than, it, than it's ever been because of the, the strides that the outdoor game has taken, especially in the last few years, to become so much more exciting and so more offensively exciting. But indoor soccer had lots of goals. There was, you know, If you were an uneducated soccer fan and you went to San Diego Sports Arena on a Saturday night with your date because somebody gave you some free tickets to this thing called indoor soccer. And all of a sudden, all you're seeing is a bunch of goals. It's kind of fun. There's, there's lots of cheering. There's lots of back and forth. Uh, there's, uh, there's plenty of offense. So I think that really um, was, was a huge, huge boost for the indoor game. And I'm not sure the NASL ever really uh, embraced the indoor game uh, fully. And, and I think part of the problem maybe was that as it turned out, the indoor game was never really hugely successful in the big markets because I think it was perceived to be a, a minor league sport. The one exception to that might be Chicago, uh, where the sting drew very well, and, and it was a pretty popular thing there, and, and people would come in from the suburbs to go see it and, and pack the old Chicago stadium. But in New York, it never really was a big thing. Briefly, the Islanders had their run with Steve, or not Islanders, the uh, Arrows, with uh, Steve Jungle and, and, and his years there. But it never really took hold. I remember doing a game at Madison Square Garden, uh, the San Diego Soccers and the uh, New York Cosmos. And, and I, I'd be stunned if there was a thousand people there. And it never really took big hold in L.A. 
the Lasers were never really uh, a franchise that drew well at all. Uh, the places where it did flourish, attendance-wise, were, were San Diego and St. Louis and Kansas City and Baltimore and Cleveland. And, you know, those are not really major American markets in the same way that Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. are. So I, I, I think that, uh, that it was perfect for that next tier of markets and below, uh, which would include places like Wichita, where it was very popular. Uh, but I, I think the real reason the NASL never really took it that seriously was because they were based out of New York. They were a very cosmocentric league. And indoor soccer just did not really catch on in the New York area in a big way. So it, it kind of trickled down to those other cities. But, boy, uh, you know, it, it was so big in my mind for a good eight to ten years, most of those being in the MISL. I remember going into the old Checker Dome in St. Louis and in those days, the St. Louis Blues weren't very good, and they were draw- drawing probably, I don't know, twelve or thirteen thousand a game. And the St. Louis Steamers would sell out every game, nineteen thousand. It was it was just phenomenal, and it was at the absolute peak. Uh, and, and we thought it would never go away, and and only get bigger, got bigger. But uh, eventually, the owners managed a way to screw it up. Figured out a way to screw it up. Well, I want to get into the the, the indoor dynasty uh, in San Diego in a second, but I'm really curious since you had a bunch of years both at Edmonton and with the in the NASL, a couple of years with the San Diego Soccer's. Uh, when did you kind of know or see that the wheels were falling off the league, or or any examples of of just the of it probably not going to last uh, much longer? Um, I'm just I'm I'm just endlessly fascinated at sort of how the thing came about to its demise uh, as much as I am about, you know, how successful and go-go it was in the earlier part of the seventies and early eighties. Well, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you with a, you know, a couple of decades of hindsight. I think one of the worst things for the MISL in the long run was the San Diego soccers. They kept winning. They, in the 10 years I was there, they won nine, uh, nine championships and it became very discouraging for a lot of these owners who came in, laid down the money, started their franchise, and they just couldn't win. They couldn't win a championship. They had good teams. And I think of the Tacoma Stars. I think of the, the Kansas City uh, franchise, Wichita, uh, the Baltimore Blast, who were probably San Diego's top rival back in those days. And they would get to that final and and Ron Newman's team would end up winning it every year, year after year after year. Welcome back to San Diego. It is all over. A long, grueling MISL season comes to an incredible climax. The Soccers winning the championship. The final score tonight, 3-1. to The Soccers defeat the Baltimore Blast. Credit to a great Baltimore team who battled back. They took this series to its absolute limit. But the Soccers, the champions they were last year, prevail again. The 1982-83 MISL champions, and it is one big celebration down on the field. Stay with us. We are going down to the field for the post-game presentation by Commissioner Earl Foreman. We will be joining that celebration in a moment, but right now it is just one big party here at the sports arena.
I think of the Wolstein family in Cleveland, where I, I don't know this for a fact, but I think they finally just got so frustrated frustrated in the fact that they could never win a championship. They could never get past San Diego that they finally pulled out. And, and, and I think there was also some mismanagement at the, at the commissioner level. There was a lot of, a lot of bouncing around of of the commissioners of the MISL and unqualified people. And, and and there were, you know, when there was crisis, the, the management of that crisis wasn't very good and so on and so on. But I, re- I really think it hurt uh, to come back to my main point that no other team could break through. And I think it frustrated the owners in the other cities and ultimately the fans as well that, you know, at the beginning of the season, you pretty much knew that San Diego was going to win it. So what's the point? All right, hang in there, everybody. We're going to be back to our conversation in just a second. But uh, time quickly to pay a couple of bills. And uh, you've heard me talk about The Great Courses Plus on uh, some previous episodes. And if you haven't tried it, well, by golly, this is uh, one of your last opportunities to get a free month of unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. You're going to get a free month of unlimited access to the entire library of thousands of hours of great lectures and tons of great coursework uh, from The Great Courses Plus. Look, you're interested in things like sports psychology. uh, You ever wonder if there's life on Mars? You want to learn how to invest or or possibly uh, uh, improve your your muscle tonage with uh, strength training? Well, there's a whole bunch of those kind of courses and more across topics like history and science and food and wine and various hobbies, health and fitness personal and professional development, you name it. And I I highly recommend their brand new course uh, made uh, or put together in conjunction with uh, National Geographic uh, called Fundamentals of Photography. Yeah, you kids today, you think with your uh, your, uh, smartphones, you think you can kind of handle everything. Yeah, I got all kinds of filters and lenses and stuff, and and you've got it all covered, right? Well, no, no, you don't, Einstein. You've got lots of uh, amazing uh, technical capabilities that only a professional photographer and one you can learn from uh, at The Great Courses Plus can teach you. Well, things like aperture and 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 lens uh, sizes and, and uh, things like uh, shutter speeds. And, and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff and there's different ways to shoot stuff, whether it's digital or, God forbid, even use film for that sort of high quality, uh, uh, you know, sort of retro look. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that you, uh, you young whippersnappers have no idea. And I highly encourage you to check out Fundamentals of Photography among the dozens and dozens of other great courses and hundreds and thousands of hours of great learning that will be yours, all yours, at The Great Courses Plus. And again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. And you will get one free month of unlimited, yes, I said unlimited access to the entire library of The Great Courses Plus service and, and, uh, and offerings. It's a tremendous opportunity. There's so many great things in there. And uh, I guarantee that uh, a month will not be enough and you will be converted like I am and have been to the great stuff that is The Great Courses Plus. Once again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats for a limited time offer of a free month of the entire service. Unlimited access. Uh, You get the app. You can stream it to any device. You can download them. You can listen to them in audio form. It's all there for you once again at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Get your free month. Enjoy it. Let me know how you love it because I guarantee you will. And now back to our conversation. 
so give me a sense then. I mean, I, I think people need to sort of, uh, if you could, you go to Wikipedia and you look at sort of the San Diego soccer's uh, uh, indoor uh, run. I mean, it is, it's just absolutely stunning. And if you think about this, like happening in, in, in you know, uh, uh, the NBA or the NHL or NFL or whatever. I mean, yeah, there are dynasties, but, you know, th- that's an understatement when you, when you look at, uh, from 1981 to 82, the first season, I think you were there, right? In the NASL and then 83, 84, which is also the NASL, but and all the other seasons, which were MISL, and then 1991 and 91, 92 was the renamed MSL. The San Diego Soccers won every single championship in those years, save for the 86, 87 season when they lost in the semifinal. I mean, that is just absolutely, I mean, dominant, I guess, is, I can't think of another word. That's just that is an amazing run that, you know, I think, sadly, is a, a bit lost to history because of, of the checkered history, shall we say, of this indoor version of the game. Absolutely. And and even when we were in the midst of it and it was uh, there's a famous video online called One for the Thumb when the oh, San Diego Sockers were going. For- we found it, Randy. <laughs> we'll be using it as part of the editing process. Don't you worry. Down. Do you need a winning team for a winning town? Then there's one thing I know for sure. A soccer's game is a miracle cure. Come on, sports fans, don't be glum. We've got the team that's number one. If you're down and feeling blue, ask Dr. Coker what to do. Take this tonight and call me in the morning because you want more than have it for me. We're the soccer's golden blue. World championships are nothing new. We've won one, two, three, and four. But we're not done. We want some more. More rings to show that we're the best. You know, even when they were going for their fifth championship, uh, you know, and as you would try and convince people in in larger mainstream media that they ought to pay attention to this thing and this team, uh, I don't care what it is. If it's professional sports, I don't care if it was professional tiddlywinks to win 10 championships in a little over a decade or nine in 10 years is unheard of. And, you know, they kept putting a team on the field and the, the personnel changed so much in the, in the early years, it was, you know, Julie V was the big star and, and then it would end up being Bronco Sagoda. And then it was Steve jungle and it, it went on and on. And then they had great American players too, like uh, Kevin Crow and Alan Mayer uh, and, and then world-class international outdoor players like Kaz Dana, who was on the Polish national team. And, and, and the one common thread through the dynasty was Ron Newman. Uh, team, the team had a general manager in those years, but the general manager was just on the business side. Ron Newman recruited the players, brought them in, signed them, coached them. And, and to me, uh, the late, great Ron Newman, who, who we lost several years ago, was, was the reason for the dynasty. He knew the players who could play, and he brought them together and kept them together just long enough to extract championships out of them. Yeah, so 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 explain to our audience Ron Newman, right? Because uh, he's clearly the the center of all of this, and and without you know whom a lot of this uh, success, this uh, amazing and and unduplicated success would not have would have happened. Obviously, he was you know part of the original NASL and and was you know part of the you know arguably one of the sort of uh, saviors of the league when it was on its last legs in the earlier part of the 
the 1970s and the Fort Lauderdale Strikers as a player and a coach. Maybe some recollections of, of Ron Newman as a coach, because, you know, you can't imagine uh, this kind of a dynasty would have happened without, uh, you know, his brilliance as a coach. No, no, absolutely. And, and, and even beyond that, I would argue if you were going to identify the greatest salesman of the sport, not just indoor, but outdoor as well, uh, through the 80s and the 90s, it, it has to be Ron Newman. Um, he was uh, he had just such an uh, effervescent personality. Uh, he came from the, the background of the credibility of being a player in, in England, uh, most notably with Portsmouth, um, and then was one of the true pioneers um, in, in North America, first uh, joining the Atlanta Chiefs, imagine, back in 1967, and then moving on and as you referenced, eventually uh, finishing his playing career in the NASL with Fort Lauderdale and then making that transition into coaching. But when it came to coaching the indoor game, he, he just figured it out. And, and I, I wish I had the recollection or maybe I didn't even have the conversation uh, because when I sort of drifted away from, from the sport as far as being around Ron Newman a lot, and that was after – uh, my second year as the broadcaster for the Kansas City Wizards in MLS before they changed their name and, and Ron was the first head coach they ever had. Um, I, I, I wish I would have spent the time to go through him with him, how he figured out the indoor game. I don't know if he watched uh, a lot of basketball or hockey, uh, the five-man games to try and figure out what would work with that. But he, he, was, he was such an innovator as well. Uh, I know it doesn't sound like a big deal now, but you know, when, when he was down by uh, a, a few goals, he would never hesitate to pull his goalkeeper. And, and on power plays, he would pull his goalkeeper, something you never see in the NHL unless a team is, is desperate in the last few minutes. Ron would do it right. He would do it in the first quarter. And, you know, it would end up becoming, we would call it the super power play uh, because it would be a six on four with no keeper. And then all the teams started to do it after that. And, uh, you know, that was just one of his, his innovations. Um, and uh, the, the thing that strikes me most is his ability to find these players. He was well-connected um, because he was able to, to find these characters. You know, the, the famous ones are maybe a little easier to find, but he would find those players like Brian Quinn, uh, who was a, such an important part of, of the team defensively and offensively and would – later go on to the national team playing outdoor, uh, Gene Wilrich, uh, Addie Coker, um, players like uh, the goalkeepers he would find, um, Victor Nagara and, and uh, Jim Gorsick. And he won with so many different kinds of players, but he always had that core of very skilled guys, very smart players with the ball, players that made those around them better. But then he also had the ability to manage the big personalities like you know, if you've ever, if you ever spent back in those days, any time around Julie V or Bronco Segoda or Steve Jungle, uh, these guys were big personalities. They weren't, they were prickly. Sometimes they weren't the easiest to coach. There were spats. I remember Hugo Perez shoving, um, our assistant coach, Johan Arneo during a game once, and he was suspended, but you know, he would later go on and have a great season the rest of the way. Ron was able to manage the personalities that he brought in. Uh, and, and was able to extract the excellence out of them on top of being just such a tremendous salesman. And whenever a microphone was in him, in front of him, 
he not only had a great personality, but also had a, a great sense of humor. Uh, and and he, uh, he, he was just the whole package and deservedly is in the is in the soccer hall of fame and i just wish as you alluded to that what he created with that dynasty team was was more recognized in the mainstream of american sport for what it was and it was truly remarkable how about the uh, the fans and in, in san diego and 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 how quote unquote major league uh was was the soccer's franchise uh relative say to the the padres or or the uh, the chargers Obviously, it was a big and, and dynastic uh, experience, but it was also arguably is these, you know, it's it's not it's neither of those two major leagues. Was there warm embrace? I mean, the, the crowds seemed to be pretty steady and uh, and voluble during those years. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, once they started winning, which didn't take very long in the indoor sport, uh, they were very well received, very well treated by the local San Diego media, for sure. Uh, to get an MISL highlight in those days on Sports Center in the early years of ESPN was almost impossible. Um, but but in, at the local level, the the soccer's were were very embraced. Uh, uh, San Diego, because of the year-round climate, was a a very big soccer community as far as the you know minor soccer and and youth soccer. Uh, and and when this team came there and started to win, they were very well received. The the ticket prices compared to the Chargers and even the Clippers for a time before they moved up to L.A. They shared the old sports arena with the Soccers for a few years. And then the Soccers shared uh, old Jack Murphy Stadium with the Chargers. Uh, you know, going to a Soccers game was, was much more affordable for a family. And it, it was very much a family environment uh, because of the, the way the whole thing was set up and, and the nature of the game. So uh, very well received. I, I my, Some of my fondest memories were... Uh, for me, it was always the best if you won a championship on the road. Uh, of course, we flew commercial in those days, uh, and you know some soccer teams still do to this day, as opposed to uh, maybe some of the other major sports. Pretty much everyone flies charter now, but we would we would win a championship, and I say we would win because there were nine of them. Uh, we'd win a championship on the road, and of course, everybody got to go out after that win and, and celebrate all night long. No one slept. You'd get on the plane and, say, leave Baltimore and fly back to San Diego, and we'd land. And this was the days when security at the airports was much different. Anybody could walk into an airport and literally walk up to a gate. You were never uh, scanned or screened or anything. It was just different. And there would be over a thousand people at the gate at San Diego airport to greet the team, chanting with flags. And it was, you'd literally the players would, would walk through a cauldron of supporters on both sides of the aisles of the uh, airport. Uh, and it was, it was sometimes over a thousand people with television cameras and everything, something that would never happen now. Uh, and those were some of the most remarkable moments. There would later be uh, celebrations at the arena. They never really did a, a proper parade that I could imagine. I could be wrong about that, but they never did a, a parade through uh, downtown San Diego in the same way that you see it now with, with teams when they win a World Series or a, a Super Bowl or a Stanley Cup or, or a Women's World Cup champion as we recently had. But, but that, that walk through the airport and all those supporters and all the, the fans of San Diego uh, there to, to cheer the team home and welcome them home, uh, it still brings a, a spine-tingling feeling to me remembering those moments. Well, so what about your career at that point, too, right? Because I'm 
assuming that the, the soccer's gig was not the only thing that you were doing, knowing, you know, the world of, of sports broadcasting isn't necessarily the most, uh, shall we say, stable or secure. I, I got to think you were, in addition to uh, riding that uh, that amazing run with the soccer's, you were also sort of keeping an eye on uh, other opportunities and gigs and maybe even sports and, and situations uh, and maybe doing some of those simultaneously to your soccer's work. But I'm assuming all of that. Yes, no, you're absolutely correct. The indoor soccer season, you know, occupied the winter months and, and it was really November through April. And then there was a lot of di- downtime there. So uh, I eventually became the pregame, halftime, postgame talk show host for the San Diego Chargers in the NFL on radio. Uh, did all the Chargers in stadium um, video voice work on the Jumbotron. Uh, did some backup work as the San Diego Padres in stadium announcer. Uh, and, and, you know, a variety of other things. And of course, got an opportunity then to do soccer work outside of San Diego, uh, eventually doing U.S. national team games uh, and then U.S. national team games on the old Sports Channel America. That eventually leading to doing the first World Cup I did, um, which was for TNT in 1990 and then Women's World Cup, the first one, which wasn't really called the World Cup World Championship in 91. But yeah, I, I started to branch out and do more and more things and then eventually uh, got the opportunity to work in hockey as well uh, and, and eventually settled in doing the NHL, which I have now. I'm coming up on my 29th year. But yeah, as a broadcaster, you're looking to, to branch out and, and do things in the offseason. And uh, I was absolutely doing that as well as uh, doing the you know daily sports on the radio stations that those teams were on. So I had a lot going on at that time, but it was great because uh, uh, it, it, it was an opportunity to, to get to do sports that I didn't know as much about, and it was a real growth time for me. All right, so let, let's uh, let's round the uh, the curve here, and I appreciate all of this thus far because this is uh, this is great stuff. I you know I don't even know if some of the most diehard San Jose Sharks fans know uh, your your soccer history and past, and uh, you know I'm sorry to drag you back to it, but uh, maybe a few of them will find it interesting as as we do. Explain to me how the San Jose Sharks gig, which you know again almost you know approaching 30 years, is an amazing uh, an amazing story in and of itself. Uh, we've had a couple of different conversations around, I guess, the progenitors of what ultimately became the franchise that uh, came to the NHL in San Jose. Clearly, the California Golden Seals, you know, of the late 60s, early 70s was part of that dynamic. Clearly, the Minnesota North Stars, uh, and we've had Howard Baldwin on this show uh, were part of sort of that uh, that uh, input there. I'm not asking you to go back into the history books and, and become a hockey scholar, but but you were kind of involved in part of the generation of interest in getting hockey back to the Bay Area uh, in some way, shape, or form that ultimately became the Sharks, no? Yes. Uh, my wife at the time was a television weather anchor, and she got a job. I met her in San Diego when we married there. She got a job in San Jose. So we moved to San Jose, but I was still doing the San Diego Soccers. It was kind of my second go around with them. I had left and then I had been brought back um, for a couple of years. And it was at that time, just as luck would have it, as we were moving to the Bay Area, that the city of San Jose voted to build what is now SAP Center. But at that point, it was going to become San Jose Arena. 
And the feeling back then, from what we could gather, was that the, they were going to try and attract the Warriors, the NBA, to this new arena in San Jose, as Silicon Valley was just starting to become Silicon Valley, and, and there was a lot of wealth in the area, and the projections were that it was going to grow and become an economic engine, which was absolutely correct. So uh, as we were living there, I, I came into contact through a little article in the newspaper with a, a, a group of people, particularly a couple of attorneys in San Jose who were hockey fans, and we decided to form an organization called NHL Hockey San Jose. And I was then, by that time, doing the work with the LA Kings as well. And I had this opportunity to go around the NHL as part of my regular job and on the side toot the horn about this idea of bringing an NHL team to San Jose. And eventually the NHL forced us to change our name to Pro Hockey San Jose because we were using their trademark name. But that's actually one of the reasons we called the organization now because, because we we're trying to get their attention. And it's funny you just referenced Howard Baldwin because we went about trying to attract ownership. And we were contacted by Howard Baldwin, uh, who had sold uh, his NHL interests at that point and was looking to get back in. And he had an investor. And he partnered with us to uh, go to the city of San Jose with this idea of pursuing an expansion franchise for San Jose. Long story short, at the end, when the franchise was allocated, there was a, a power move by the Gund family, per, uh, predominantly George Gund. He and his brother Gordon, uh, who also owned the Cleveland Cavaliers at that time, were the owners of the Minnesota North Stars. And they wanted the Bay Area market. They had Bay Area ties, and they wanted the expansion franchise in San Jose. So they swapped out um, the Minnesota North Stars for the rights to San Jose. Howard Baldwin ended up with the Minnesota North Stars, later sold them, and they became the Dallas Stars. But the Gunn family came in. They became the original owners of the San Jose Sharks. And uh, the first year, I was one of their broadcasters, first two years. And then by year three, I was their primary television broadcaster. So, and, I, and I'm not shy to say it, I was hoping to create a job for myself by bringing an expansion franchise to um, San Jose. And in a roundabout long way, not having any of the money to stick into actually buying the team, that's what I was able to do. Well, so, so that's really interesting because that's, uh, it's, uh, I was going to ask the question, was it quid pro quo in, in that process? In this crazy business of sports broadcasting, right? I mean, that's, you know, that, that's a that's a very entrepreneurial thing to do. Right. And arguably, you know, if it pays out right, it becomes uh, kind of lifetime employment or or at least steady employment. Right. Which is probably, you know, something that most people, you know, in their early years schlepping in the minor leagues and doing what they got to do, get their tapes out there, you know, dream of having is that kind of stable gig. Well, absolutely. And and again, one of the and, and this just defies the way it's supposed to go. And anybody who's out there right now who's an aspiring hockey broadcaster in the ECHL or the NAHA or um, the USHL or even the American Hockey League will, will be disgusted when they hear that I never, ever did a minor league hockey game in my life before I did my first San Jose Sharks television game. It's just the way it worked out. The NASL could qualify as that, right? If you, if, you, if you want to be the haughty American sports fan, right? But, you know, you paid your dues, right? There's no no doubt about that. No, no question. I did pay my dues, and, and that indoor soccer experience ended up being the, the groundwork laid to, to be able to do hockey. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a great, great opportunity, and it was also a great intersection of events because the NHL was looking to expand, 
the guns wanted to come to the Bay Area, and we formed this group. And, and all of those uh, forces came together at the right time. And uh, there was a lot of people in the NHL before the Sharks were actually uh, awarded the franchise in San Jose that felt it would never work in the Bay Area unless the arena was in San Francisco. And San, Jose, San Francisco is just now finally getting an arena. The Warriors are going to move into it. They, it. Back in those days, they were trying to build one, but never were able to. But there was a lot of naysayers in uh, the NHL who just didn't understand what San Jose was. That San Jose was the third most populated city in California behind Los Angeles and San Diego. And they didn't understand the, the future impact of Silicon Valley. And uh, once those things became, uh, you know, once the, the commissioner of the NHL and the board of governors looked deeper into this, uh, it became very apparent that if they could get a foothold in San Jose, they would essentially become the only pro sports team, no disrespect to the earthquakes, but they were in and out and in and out and, and weren't one of the big four along with football, baseball, and basketball at that time. Uh, once they saw the opportunity that was there, uh, they, they made the move to give it to San Jose and they've never looked back and it's been hugely successful. Uh, we've talked about this with a couple of other, uh, our guests and stuff. Uh, when, when it comes to, and you've been there long enough, right, to understand the history of that franchise, how much of that, though, from what you can sort of recount in the years that you've been there, how much uh, reverence is there to, towards the past uh, that sort of preceded the Sharks? Because there's, there's no question that there is a bit of North Star's in there, there's a there is a bit of the heritage or the memories of the of the seals and their follies in Oakland years prior, uh, or, or is it really kind of just it's been the sharks from day one and really no sort of look back or recollection of the mongrelness I guess that maybe preceded it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, as we close in on three decades of the franchise, you have all these these different demographic groups within the fan base, and and I think anybody that's thirty or younger is probably going to have less fond recall of, of the seals who actually ended up becoming the sharks in a very roundabout way, because when they awarded the sharks, the, um, the expansion franchise, they also forced them to have a cross pollination draft with the Minnesota North stars, where both teams got to select players in the expansion draft. So some old Minnesota North stars ended up on the San Jose sharks. And if you trace the Minnesota North stars franchise back, I think back to Cleveland, the old Cleveland NHL franchise, and then before that, they were the, the Seals. Uh, there's sort of some DNA of the Seals in the San Jose Sharks, but uh, there's, there's a certain amount of romanticism from the fans that are, uh, you know, from that era of the 60s when Charlie Finley had the Seals, uh, and even before that, there was the San Francisco Fog and and some other teams in this area in the old West Coast Hockey League, but you know, I, I think most of the romance that's uh, around for the Sharks franchise dates back to the early days. And, you know, they were remarkable, too. I was very fortunate in my first year of being full time with them. They made the playoffs in only their third year. And, of course, we've recently seen the Vegas Golden Knights in their first year go all the way to the Stanley Cup final. Uh, but back in those days, the expansion draft was brutal for the new teams and for San, San Jose to be in the playoffs in year three and then knock off Detroit in the first round was uh, absolutely a stunning development. It was the greatest um, playoff upset in, in NHL history, arguably up to that point. So a lot of the, the romanticism dates back to that time. Unfortunately, the team hasn't won a Stanley Cup, which is where a lot of that nostalgia and that 
romance emanates from, from championship years. So, uh, you know, to say that there's a lot of connection back to the pre-NHL days in the Bay Area uh, from the time the Seals left and in between, uh, I, I wouldn't say there's an over- overwhelming amount. There's some, but uh, most of the memories are the last 30 years of the team that's here now. Well, and it's an amazing legacy that you've created uh, for yourself, literally and figuratively, there uh, in San Jose. All right, so last uh, major question here, and I appreciate all of this time so far. Uh, given your uh, uh, long and, and distinguished and, and varied career, frankly, in uh, in broadcasting pro sports, and in particular uh, soccer, both outdoor, indoor, and hockey, what are your thoughts of where those two sports are now professionally in this country and where we're headed. You know, I think there are a lot of people who look at MLS as being stable, yet maybe not sort of the real full thing, uh, you know, which is certainly what the NASL never really sort of became. I think there are some people who look at $600 million plus expansion fees in the NHL for a new team in Seattle. You know, I are we in the best of times or or the beginnings of the end of a cycle. I'm just curious as to both of those sports, given your your heritage in both of them, your 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 off the cuff thoughts about sort of where those two sports are headed in this country. Well, um, obviously, my my uh, my body of work most recently has predominantly been in the NHL. So I, I can probably speak to that um, most clearly. And I, and I think that the NHL is on a real upswing now. Uh, with what we've seen with Vegas and what they've created on and off the ice and pushing the envelope of making the experience of going to a game an entertainment experience along with the hockey game. And I hearken back to the old days when the MISL came out with their neon signs and smoke uh, and the players, you know, cheering the fans on at the beginning of games. And we were accused back in those days of, of being Bush League. And now if you don't have some sort of an entry like that, for your hockey or basketball or even football team, you're considered to be, uh, you know, uh, minor league. And in those days, it was we were accused of doing it because it was minor league. But uh, I, I think the NHL is on an upswing. You, you referenced, uh, you know, expansion and Seattle's coming in in a couple of years, and I think that'll be a tremendous uh, thing for the growth of the league. And as far as MLS goes and, and the pro game in the U.S., uh, it, clearly it's it's exploded. Just recently watched a Timbers. Uh, uh, LA game, uh, Galaxy game, and, and just fabulous action in the atmosphere in Portland. And uh, I'm not sure the NASL ever had that outside of Cosmos games when Pele was there. Uh, I, I really see the game on an upswing in the U.S. And uh, it, it's I, I, I just can't imagine how much greater it would be had we made it to the last World Cup, which is another whole program. But, um, you know, I, I think both teams, both sports are on the upswing. Uh, the, the only thing that worries me, and it worries me in soccer, it worries me in hockey, and I'm worried about it even more so in the NFL, is concussions. And as we learn more about them, uh, about the um, negative effects about, uh, of them, the devastating effects at times, um, I, I'm concerned about that for all three sports uh, and it might be 10 or 20 years down the line where we, we really see the negative effects of concussions and education, but maybe there'll be prevention uh, that, that comes into play that will offset it. I, I certainly hope so. But uh, that's, that's the only thing that I can see right now that could hurt the growth of either of those two leagues in the U.S. Uh, that's, uh, it's well said, and I think it's certainly something that uh, I, I'm not sure we know the full sort of uh, ramifications of, but I, it certainly seems to be 
pretty evident uh, if you if you look pretty closely. All right. So aside from uh, your what will be, I guess, what your 30th consecutive season as the San Jose Sharks play by play guy. 29th. 29th. OK, we're getting there. I don't. So I, I, I'm, look, I'm ready to give you another stripe and you're, you're taking it back. What else uh, is uh, you have anything else to promote or uh, other things that you're involved in, in or passionate about? Or is the Sharks uh, your full time kind of uh, uh, gig and uh, and passion these days? It is my full time gig and passion. Uh, I'm working with a, a Silicon Valley startup company here that does a kind of an interesting uh, thing. It's an app. It's called Starsona. And you can download it and your favorite uh, actor or athlete or broadcaster can can do you a personal video shout out. Uh, So that's a cool thing and and something worth checking out. But, you know, other than that, uh, I'm I'm focused on the Sharks. I'm focused on working in the community in the offseason and trying to grow the sport here. We, We still trail. Uh, behind the the Giants and the Warriors and the 49ers and even the Athletics, uh, the second baseball team. Uh, we won't have to worry about the Raiders anymore. Good riddance. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's still it's still a job to uh, to sell the sport. It's still not uh, a natural sport to to most Bay Area residents. But as I always tell people, you know, get yourself to a game. Go and see a live hockey game and you'll appreciate it so much more when you watch it on TV. And I think that's the same for, for, for outdoor soccer, you know, get to a San Jose earthquakes game, go and watch it. And then when you watch it on TV, you'll appreciate it so much more. All right. Last question. Do you ever get a hankering to, to do a play by play for a soccer game or are you past that? <laughs> now, every time I watch the world cup now, I, I, I wish I was there. It's still the most amazing thing I've ever been involved with. And, and the first World Cup I got to do was in Italy in 1990, where I worked with J. Paul Della Camera, uh, among, uh, among others, and uh, did a game. It was a playoff game in Milan between the two arch rivals in South America, Brazil and Argentina, and uh, elimination game. That was on TNT, right? Yes, TNT, which had just come into being that year, and it was the first live sporting event they ever put on was the World Cup. And I'm sitting there doing this game uh, with uh, Ty Keogh, my color commentator. And uh, one goal in the game, Claudio Canizia scores on a pass from Diego Maradona. And Argentina wins one nothing. They go on to the World Cup final and lose to Germany in a penalty kick. But um, to see the passion in that stadium, 8,000 fans from Brazil who had traveled all the way to Italy for that match. And then to, to see the utter devastation of that group. And we were next to the Brazilian announcers. And unlike American sports where there's only one announced team, the Brazilians apparently are allowed to send announcers from every broadcast entity because there seemed to be uh, 10 or 20 broadcasters from Brazil. But uh, to see the emotion when that match was over and Brazil had been eliminated and the broadcasters openly weeping, tears streaming down their face, that Brazil was out of the World Cup. Um, it just it gave you a sense for the magnitude of what you were doing. Uh, and, and another match that I did in Dallas in in '94, uh, where we were doing uh, Nigeria, and and knowing that you know 16 hours away, where it was probably four in the morning, everybody in the most populated country in Africa somewhere somehow was watching that match. Uh, of, of Nigeria in the World Cup and, and realizing how big and how global it was. And when I watched the World Cup, I missed that because as great as hockey is and as, as great as uh, even doing playoffs 
is the, the global reach isn't quite the same. And when you're connected by something like a big World Cup match, there's, there's nothing quite like it. It, it uh, connects you with the rest of the, of the globe. All right, pretty cool, huh? Good guy, that Randy Hahn, and uh, we appreciate uh, him taking the time uh, to allow us to drag him back into uh, <laughs> some of the some of the interesting stops along the way before uh, reaching the promised land with the uh, San Jose Sharks. And uh, you can, of course, uh, follow all of uh, the action this coming season uh, with Randy at the helm uh, doing the play-by-play uh, for all those Sharks games on NBC Sports California. Uh, and you can also follow Randy on uh, Twitter at Shark Voice. Let's see what else. You can also follow us uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And that's the place to go to find all of our great episodes, not just this one with Randy Hahn, but geez, the the dozens and dozens of almost 130 episodes now uh, that we've done to date and and more to come. Uh, You can stream them. You can download them. You can do whatever you want with them. You can find us wherever you find good podcasts as well. But on that website, uh, you'll see it all laid out there for you. You can click and purchase any of the the books and the media that we sort of reference you know the authors and the documentarians and all those kinds of folks all there it's a it's the locus for all things about this show uh, including by the way all of our social media feeds you want to find us on twitter we'll go ahead we're at good seats still you can follow us there you want to find us on instagram well we will we'll, we'll help you there too just look for us there at good seats still available and uh, you still do the Facebook thing, huh? Well, uh, all right. Wouldn't be my choice. But uh, yeah, we got a little page devoted to the show there, too. So you can find and search that up. But uh, don't blame me if you don't see a lot of responses from me. I'm not a big Facebook guy anymore for a lot of different reasons. What else? Uh, you can find on our website uh, also the link to uh, our email address. So you can send us it directly if you want. That's hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. See, pretty simple. And uh, if you want to get our uh, our weekly email newsletter, which gives you sort of a little tip sheet as to what our episode is going to be uh, the following week, we're more than happy to send that to you, too. Just find uh, the link there on the website uh, as well. We got a whole bunch of stuff yet to come, uh, but that's the place to go. Goodseatsstillavailable.com and uh, visit there early and visit there often, as we say. Uh, Don't forget our uh, good friends, uh, Podfly Productions in particular. Uh, the one, the only, you, you can't live without him. His name is Dr. Jerry Payne. And uh, he is the guy who the producer extraordinaire that puts all of our pieces together each and every week. We thank him tremendously for doing so. And you can find out more about what he and Podfly are up to at podfly.net. And what else? I think that's it for this week. So uh, as we leave you, we are going to uh, tell you to lace up your dancing shoes because we're going to send you out with a very rare a treat and it's uh, the the official apparently San Diego Soccer's theme song and tell me the last time you heard this song and maybe it's the first time ever but enjoy it and uh, we'll see you next week goodbye everybody Can't you feel excitement in the air Can't you feel the magic everywhere And the thrills have only just begun Your socks are on the run San Diego Soccer's hottest team around San Diego Soccer's fastest game in town San Diego, San Diego Soccer's
Up and make you want to yell. 